You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. We are continuing to think about this issue of where's the hope? We've been kind of an explosion of hopelessness over the last couple of weeks, it seems like. Uh, you know, just what a, what a transition it has been with uh, President-elect Trump doing his transition team, Fidel Castro dying. Uh, you know, what's next? And the political uncertainties that are part of this world, the economic uncertainties that are very much a part of reality, where's the hope? And, of course, our answer is what? Jesus. Jesus. One more time. Our answer is where? All right. Yes, this is true. Where is the hope? And that's in Jesus. We want to continue in our pilgrim. Well, let me just ask. I got to know. I got to know. How many of you rejoiced for the ducks losing? Okay. Really? Oh, my gosh. You know who's pastor of this church, don't you? <laughs> yeah, go bees. Yeah. I did ask Jay uh, how he was feeling this morning. He was very gracious. We'll give him one in 20. I mean, it's, we, can be, we can share and share alike, he would say. Yeah. How many of you had turkey for Thanksgiving? Okay, good representative. How many had ham? Pigs are pretty safe, it looks like. How many of you had mac and cheese? Nobody? Gosh, that's kind of the gourmet food, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, how many of you watched it? part of at least one football game on Thanksgiving Day. Okay, representative sample. Mm-hmm. How many will sleep through one game today, beside me? <laughs> it's a, it is a time of celebration. It's a time of good times, a time to gather together with friends and family and just celebrate the goodness of God. So take your Bibles, if you will, or turn on your Bibles, as the case may be. And uh, we want to look together at this passage Mark chapter 12, as we finish up this chapter, what a powerful story. I'm going to begin at verse 28, although Jay preached that sermon last week, just to give some continuity here. Matthew, or sorry, Mark 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he said, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying God is one and there is another but him. To love him all your heart, your understanding, your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself, this is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw the man had answered wisely, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he also be his son? 
The large cloud listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats of the synagogues in the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Jesus said on opposite the place where the offerings were put in, watch the crowds putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is God's word for pondering and transformation this morning. Such a powerful story. Just put it in a bit of a context. Jesus entered into the temple back at the beginning of chapter 11. And these people were shouting out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they began to gather in the temple courtyards and people began to push him, probe him, test him, try to trick him. And he, in response, points out the sin of the first one in Mark chapter 12, Josh took us through, helping us see by this incredible parable, a man planted a vineyard, he put a well around it, dug a pit for a wine press, built a watchtower, all drawing from Isaiah chapter 5. But then when he sent a servant to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard, they beat him and sent him away. And finally he sent his son. And they killed the son, thinking we kill him, then we'll get everything. And this this expose showing the evil of what's going on. He's calling out the sin of God's farmers, if you will. This is the nation of Israel. The prophets have done this for a long time, and now Jesus does it too. And the people, the leaders of the temple, understood exactly what he was saying. And they said, we're going to kill that man. But he didn't stop. The, uh, another group. You teach the way of God in accordance with God's truth, they say in their flattering kind of ways. Is it right to pay the tax to Caesar or not? Well, boy, what right answer is to that one? You remember when Matt took us through that, he showed us how Jesus took the coin and said, whose image is on it? And then said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, the things of God's that are God's. And understanding that in Caesar's realm, money counts, but in God's realm, it's human hearts that count. And what he's doing there in this brilliant answer to their trap was he pointed out the sin of people who tie God's kingdom to this world's kingdom. And boy, there are plenty of those today. Because Jesus said this kingdom is not sourced in this world. It's sourced in heaven, but it works powerfully in this world. But it's an upside-down kingdom that goes by love and service, not by money and power. And what he does there in Another group, the Sadducees, come up and, you know, Sadducees deny the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. (laughs) I know it's old and crummy, but there you go. This woman had seven, there were seven brothers. One married the woman, and then he died, and another died, another died. And when you get to heaven, which one will she be married to? Jesus' reply is snapping to them. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures, the power of God? I mean, he slams them. 
He is not the God of the dead, he concludes, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. And what Jesus is doing here is calling out the sin of the the Sadducees, who are really the, the secular liberals of that day, who don't believe in the power of God. They reject the power of God, actually. And they're tied in very much into the political and economic power of the day. They were the ones who were collaborating with Roman leaders. They were the ones who were in for their own money and power and affluence and impact and influence. And Jesus pointed out their sin. The other crowd that were there and they've already questioned him were the Pharisees, who we could call the pious conservatives. They were the ones who were the teachers of the law. They're the ones who are the leaders in the temple worship. And, but they too reject God's power. They just do it in a different way. They reject God's power in favor of the religious life of the temple. So the secular liberals, the Sadducees, are saying, you know, I'll determine my own truth. I'll figure it out on my own. No authority above me. I'm going to do what's right for me. The pious conservatives are saying, we're going to follow the detailed of the Mishnaic law, and we're going to observe every little, little commandment. In order to keep the religious institution in place, and there is our salvation. And they're too denying the power of God. And there's two saying, we'll do it our way, because they not only take God's 613 commandments, but they add on hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of more to make sure that the institution and their place in the institution survives. They're both denying the power of God. And Jesus points out their sin as he does it. Jay took us through last week this most important of the commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And the teacher who asked the law came back and said, well done, Jesus, that was really good. (laughs) Yeah, I'd think so. He's like Jesus. (laughs) But of course, that wasn't the thing there. He was the guy in charge, not Jesus. Though all these people had been questioning him, We're trying to trap him. In effect, they're saying, who are you? By what right do you teach here? And he, by his answer, is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the one who's in charge of this temple. And this young man says, you're you're good, Jesus. And Jesus responds, sees that he had answered wisely. You're not far from the kingdom of God. What Jesus is doing here is he is commending the questioning teacher. Good job. You're understanding that Love God is more important than sacrifices. You're getting it. You're getting it. But what did he not get? The word here that grabs my attention when I look at it, when Jesus responds, is you're not far from the kingdom. What's the obvious next question? How do I get there? How do I get there? But what the text tells us is nobody asking him any more questions. Nobody asking him more questions. What else does a lover of God need to enter the kingdom? It's the obvious question that nobody asked, at least not openly. Okay, what's the answer? Jesus. Okay, good. Say it one more time. What's the answer? Jesus. Yeah, okay. What's the obvious question after that? Who is this Jesus? Who is this man and what is he doing? Which is the questions have taken us through this whole interchange in the Gospel of Mark. Who 
is this man that the winds and waves obey him? What is he doing when he goes into Jerusalem when he's going to get killed? What's our part in this? Those kinds of questions are behind all of this. So the question, who is this Jesus, is front and center. Here he is teaching in the temple courts, which is where people did that sort of thing. And he's in the place in the house of God. This is a place where people come to meet God, you would think, except all these people have been probing him. That's not why they're there. That's not why they're there. Where are the religious liberals there, the secular liberals there, to have their business associations, to show their wealth? Why are the pious conservatives there, to show that they're following all the rules meticulously? They're not there to meet God, not really. And here he is in the place where people meet God, and now he asks them, a question. They've been questioning him. In midst all these questions, now comes the question of the day. Back in Mark chapter 8. What about you, Jesus said? Who do you say that I am? Who's he asking that question of, those you've been around through the series? Mark chapter 8. Who's he asking this question of? Of the disciples. Of the disciples. And what's, what does Peter answer? You're the Messiah. And Jesus said, blessed are you. Because this answer comes from the Father above. Jesus answered the, asked the disciples privately, who do you say that I am? Now he's asking everybody in the temple courtyard, the most public place in all of Jerusalem, who do you say that I am? Who is the Messiah? This is all coming to a climax now. And it's tense. Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David. David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declares, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he also be his son? How can David's Lord be David's son? The question. Because David's Lord is somebody he looks up to and says, You are an authority over me. I will follow you. David's son is from him. And you don't say, Lord, to your son. How can David's Lord be David's son? Okay, I'm going to geek out a bit. Warning, warning, warning. Those of you who don't like geeking, just relax. I'll let you know when I'm done. The rest of you, hang on. Here we go. First Samuel 16. Remember Saul has disqualified himself? by not obeying God and not handling him well. And God says, I'm taking the kingdom from you. Send Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint another king. He looks at seven fine sons and says, nope, not him. And they bring David in, the youngest, from the herding the sheep. And when he walks in, Samuel takes a flask of oil and anoints him. Now that word anoint is the word Messiah. He messiahs him. So what is he Messiah him to be? Not savior of the world, but king, the savior in that sense. In the presence of brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. How come? He's anointed for a task, and the spirit comes on him. First Samuel 16. They have a long interchange with him and Saul. Saul dies. 
and he consolidates the kingdom. In 2 Samuel 7, we have the Davidic covenant. God speaking to David about David. So when your days are over, who is you? That's David. Mm -hmm. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring. Who's that? No, not Jesus. Who is that? That's David's son. Offspring just means your kid. Now, it could be grandkid or great-grandkid. By the way, I have some... No, I don't have any grandkid pictures today. <laughs> and when you look at this one, this offspring, your own flesh and blood, all established the kingdom, he is the one who will build a house for my name. Who did that? Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is that Solomon? What do Solomon's kids do? Rehoboam and Jeroboam. They split the kingdom in a blood rivalry between brothers. And a few generations later, there was no kingdom left. They were in Babylon. So we're saying, gosh, it wasn't Solomon. It wasn't Solomon's kids. Who is this? Well, it's David's son will be the Messiah, the one who has not yet come. So we sang a few minutes ago, the long-awaited Messiah. That's what they're singing that day, too. Who is this offspring of David? He will be a spirit-empowered human like David. What did David do? He was a great king who established the nation of Israel, set up a place of righteousness and justice, and they were generally at peace with the world through the reign of David once he got things set up. We're looking for another one like him, a spirit-empowered son of David who will be a king like David, a king after God's own heart. But that's not the end of it. Psalm 110. I've got part of the psalm here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. For the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Who's David? Who is he? He's like the king, right? Okay. He also wrote the psalm. Okay, so David is saying, the Lord. Who's that? When you see four capital letters, Lord, what does that mean? That's the personal name, Yahweh. And that's the name of God. So David says, the Lord. Okay, so who's above David? Well, Yahweh, of course. But the Lord says to my Lord. The Hebrew there is Adonai. And the obvious question, okay, God's above David. Who is this Adonai? Who is the my Lord? Hmm. Let's see what it says about him. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Rule is who rules? Well, kings rule. So the my Lord will be a king. Okay. And you are a priest forever. So he's also a priest. This, my Lord. And that is, as we look at this, that's clearly talking about Messiah. So when you come back and think about it, the one who is Adonai is Messiah. Who will David say, my Lord, to? Which other human might David say my Lord to? 
Well, he said it to Saul. How come? Saul was king. And David is the not king, said my Lord to Saul, but Saul is dead now. Who is above the king of Israel on a human level? Nobody. There is no human being that David will say my Lord to. How about the king of Egypt? No, uh-uh. King of Syria? Mm-mm. King of Babylon? Nope. No human being will get my Lord from David. Nobody. How about an angel? Would David say, my Lord, to an angel? Say, Michael, the archangel? Or Gabriel? No. No. You don't say, my Lord, to an angel. Who do you say, my Lord, to? Hmm. But we've already got Yahweh up there. Who's my Lord? You see what's happening here? This is a famous riddle. Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. You look at that in language, and quickly you Bible geeks will think, oh, Psalm 2. Right, you were all thinking that, weren't you? <laughs> Psalm chapter 2. I have a soul, my king, on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. I will make the nations inheritance, the end of your possession. Clearly messianic. Who's the he? Who's the he? Who said to me, you are my son. Who is that? That's Yahweh. Now you get some changing of person as Psalm goes on, but that's Yahweh. You are my son. Messiah. What does it say about Messiah? He is God's son. Who is the Adonai? Back in Psalm 110, he is God's son. But if David calls him my Lord, he can't be a human or an angel. Therefore, he must be a divine being. I thought God was one. And he is. But we also believe, and ancient Jews did too, there was a a complexity in the unity of God. We know more of that when we call it today what? Trinity. Who is the Adonai? We'd call him the second person of the Trinity. The Logos, John 1 calls him. He is the one who will be incarnated as Jesus. So this one who is David's son, a spirit-empowered human, is also God's son, really God, Emmanuel, God with us, and that's all present in Jesus. All bound up in this riddle. Okay, geek out over What do we see in the book of Mark? The very first verse. This is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. At the end of the book of Mark, we find the centurion watching Jesus die on a cross. And he says, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died? He said, surely this man was the Son of God. The book ends. Now in the middle, Jesus is the Son of God. Another question. Who is it who lives with Jesus as Son of God? Who is it that lives with Messiah as Lord? So we look at this. Is it the powerful, prayerful pastor teachers? Is it? 
Are the temple authorities the ones who are going to be following Jesus as Lord? And Jesus, in most scathing possible ways, says these men in their flowing robes, these men in their fancy titles, these men who love to take care of things and show how powerful they are, these are not, 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 not. In fact, not only are they unfaithful servants, they're going to be punished most severely. Who is that? Well, that's Matt Patrick, of course. I've got to pick on my friend. (laughs) Now, anybody knows Matt Patrick, he is not walking around in flowing robes. (laughs) See, we don't have that kind of thing here, but you know who they are. They're still very much a part of our society. Who is the one who is following Jesus as Lord? Who is the one who is living as you ought to be living? Jesus points out this poor widow with a couple of tiny coins. Let's take a look at this as a video. This video clip gives a good picture of what this actually looked like. say unto you that this poor widow had cast in more than they owe. For all these have of their abundance cast in unto the offerings of God, but she of her penury has cast in all the living that she had. Pretty accurate rendering of what that would look like. You see the rich men throwing in coin after coin after coin after coin, some big coins, some but pointing out. And this, well, the film clip comes from the Mormons. The clip is good. The gospel isn't, I'm quick to say. This widow... If you're looking across this scene and you look at that and you'd say, who is the important person here? Would any of you have noticed this woman? And I think the answer is probably not. Who would be the modern day equivalent of this widow? The homeless person on the corner that's so easy to, if I really wanted to, get under your skin, I'd say, how many of you smile and greet the homeless person in the corner? Because we don't want anything to do with her. Unfortunately. Too often. Just as that woman is the one. A worthless woman giving a worthless amount of money. What difference will two tiny pennies make? 
in that huge treasury box with rich men throwing in lots of money. Yet Jesus points her out as, as the example. She gives how much, did he say? She gives all out of, out of what? Out of what? Duty. She's been told her whole life, you must put money into the treasury. Or is this in the context of the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with her heart, soul, mind, strength, and she's getting out of love? Which is it? Text doesn't tell us. No commentary at all on the woman except she put in all she had. Did she give all out of duty? Were the is the temple system oppressing her out of her poverty to put in what little she had? Or was she giving out of love? A true example of what it means to live in light of God's reality. I think in the flow of what Mark is doing and telling the story, I think she's giving out of love. Remember Mark 8, after Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And he turned to the crowds and said, whoever wants to be a disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me, the gospel will save it. Mark chapter 10, the rich man comes to him and says, what must I do to enter the kingdom? And Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. He said, I've kept them from infancy. And he had. Jesus said, just one more thing. Just one more thing. Go sell everything. Give to the poor. Come follow me. What did the man do? He walked away. He was too much. What does the widow do? She fulfills. Come follow me. A easy to look over, easy to miss widow is the one who is the fulfillment of what Jesus said to the crowds in John eight and Mark eight and what he said to the rich man in Mark ten. She gave out of her poverty, put in everything, her entire sustenance probably for the day. She lays down her life out of love for Yahweh. This is the last interchange. Which leaves us that question, you know, how do we respond to this? Who lives with Messiah as Lord? Well, there's a worthless widow giving a worthless amount of money if we judge from the world standards but she's held up as the exemplar earlier in the story we saw another one who was held up as a example who is that blind Bartimaeus what did he do 
he yelled out to Jesus and would not be silenced. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, what do you want? And he says, I want to see. And Jesus touches him and he can see. And then what does he do? He worships Yahweh and then what does he do? He follows Jesus, the perfect disciple. The centurion at the foot of the cross. When you see Jesus die, surely this man was the son of God. The perfect disciples in the picture there are not Peter, James, and John, though they're learning and growing. They're rather unexpected people. Blind beggar, a quote-unquote worthless widow, and an oppressive tyrant. She laid down her life. Of course, that reminds us what Jesus did. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus laid down his life for us. And I ponder. I look at the picture of Jesus here in this riddle, the picture of Messiah, Emmanuel. He is both our Lord, whom we owe total loving obedience, and our brother, who has experienced all the things we've experienced. Did he know what it was like to live penniless? Mm-hmm. Did he know what it was like to lay everything aside? Mm-hmm. Did he know what it was like to... Well, yeah. He is our Lord and our brother. He is our king and our priest. We say to him, Adonai, my Lord. And we also say to him, Lord, help! Because he's been through every temptation like as we have and understands with deep compassion where we're coming from. And he understands the strength that gives us the courage to cast out demons or heal or go into impossible situations. We say, all this in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is our Lord and our brother, our king and our priest. Do I, <laughs> do I trust that what God actually says is true? and order my life accordingly. I know a lot of people who, well, I hear the phrase often, I'm trusting God for. And I pretty much assume whatever comes after that is not something God said he was going to do. It's something I want him to do. And I use this phrase, I'm trusting God for. Why don't I just say, God, please, I need. It sounds so much more spiritual to say, I'm trusting God for. But when God says, actually do something, Four things he says to a husband, live with, understand, honor, fellow heir, 1 Peter 3, 7. When Sherry points out the sin in my life, what should I do? I should explain to her why she's wrong, right? <laughs> Clearly she is. Or do I respond with trust that she is Oban, who loves me deeply and is my fellow heir, and God speaks through her into me. What does trusting God really look like in your life? Do I give money or life? This woman gave both. 
Do we want your money here at Grace Community Church? We want some of it. Absolutely. Why? Because we want our pastors and staff to walk around in rich flowing robes, right? (laughs) No. I know as an elder that our pastors are not paid exorbitant salaries by a lot. We do want them to live in a reasonable lifestyle and be able to do the things they need to do. That's what you're giving to us in Mission and Vision. That's a piece of that. Advent Conspiracy. A couple weeks from now, this building will be filled with community people. We're going to ask you next week to give an offering to that. Why? Because we want to bless our community. But we're also going to want your life. We're not after your money. Well, kind of we are. We're mostly after your life. And the way we do our money and our time and our energy exemplifies our life. We want both. Whose kingdom am I building? Mine or God's? And the way I ask the question, it's one or the other, and what I'd like to suggest to you, it should be both. Because, see, if we're living, trusting what God actually says is really true and ordering my life accordingly, then the kingdom that I'm building is mine and God's because I'm a son of God himself through Jesus Christ. And the legacy that I build is a legacy that will be God-honoring all the way along. And I think of the people in Scripture. How about David? Was he building his own kingdom? Well, in one sense, yes. But in another sense, he was building a kingdom that would exemplify and show out the power of God in his transformation. We don't have to make it one or the other because if we're responding to God as he leads by the power of the Holy Spirit, the legacy that we're building is a godly legacy. And we can look at it and take in a right sense. We can take real pride in what we do because it's not exalting me for my sake. It's building my role as son of the Lord Most High as a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. You always ask, who is this man? What is he doing? What does he want me to do? What did the woman do when she came to the treasury? What did she put in? Two tiny coins. But they were what? Everything. Does God want you to give everything? Does God want you to take your bank account and empty it out? Does God want you to take your retirement program and Get rid of it? What's the answer? Maybe. Exactly right, Don. He may. He may. He didn't ask that of everybody. What's he asking for? He's asking for you to be willing to do that. And listening to his command. And then being wise. To make sure what you hear is really God, not your guilty conscience. That's why you live in community here. But God may ask you to give everything. You just never know. He may ask you to invest your money and do wisely and give money in life to support people who can do nothing. Givers. He may ask you to give up your pride and receive from him. What an incredible story. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve 
and give his life a ransom for many. And he shows us that in a widow. be so easy to overlook. But if we have eyes of faith, we look and say, that, that, that woman, not those powerful men. I'll follow him. We have over on the side communion tables, and here in a bit as we come together to sing worship, prayer team will be up, and as you ponder, maybe it'd be good to go have some pondering with Jesus around the communion table. It was some friends. Maybe just time to pray. Maybe it's time to gather somebody with you. I was talking to somebody last service who sat in a sermon I did back on divorce, and in her pain, she just sat there and bawled. And people gathered around her where she sat and loved on her and prayed with her. Are you willing to do business with Jesus? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you do love us like that. Thank you that we can serve you. Thank you that you call us to be your children. And then you delight in the growth of your children, and then you call us to grow some more. Holy Spirit, show us those places where we need to grow, and give us those spots where we have grown, and help us say, yes, love it. And then take the next step of growth. We'll sing your praise together as we look for your help in growing into the best child, best son, best daughter of the Lord Most High. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.